Welcome to Ed Leader with your host, Dr. Rob Jackson. Join Dr. Jackson for conversations and reflections on improving educational leadership from the classroom to the boardroom and beyond. Educational leadership is an ever-evolving opportunity to make a real and lasting difference in the lives of students, parents, and the community. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rob Jackson. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Ed Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Jackson, and I want to thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you for investing your time with the Ed Leader Podcast as we learn with and from outstanding Ed Leaders. This podcast has been and is truly a labor of love for the profession and the colleagues who have given so much to me. If you have not, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. The podcast has grown so much because of your kind words and positive ratings. Remember, you can find show notes, links to the references that are cited during each episode, and find each of the previous regular episodes and the special series at drrobjackson.com. Today's episode is part two of an incredible conversation with Stephanie Harvey and Annie Ward, co-authors of From Striving to Thriving and Intervention Reinvention. In part one, they defined reading volume and discussed tabling the labels. Table the labels, they said, that become self-fulfilling prophecies for striving readers. In part two, the rubber hits the road as Stephanie and Annie bring the research alive and give practical advice for making a difference for students. Speaking of making a difference, let's get to it. In part one, I shared a synopsis of Stephanie and Annie's bios. I won't repeat those again, but as we transition back into the conversation, please allow me to highlight their book, From Striving to Thriving Again. I truly enjoy this book for its readability and for the depth of research presented in an easily readable format that underpins the work. If nothing else, when a superhero like Dave Pilkey, author of the Captain Underpants books, writes and illustrates the introduction, you know that you're in for fun. Please help me welcome back two tireless advocates for students and teachers, Miss Stephanie Harvey and Miss Ione Ward. I've been flipping back and forth in my notes from hearing both of you speak. And, and Annie, I wrote in big, huge capital letters, when you dared to go to a place that teachers, teachers, teachers might not go, when you suggested comic books were a, a, a source of reading, and then I'm listening to Stephanie, and she throws up on the screen in front of all these professional educators a copy of the front cover of Captain Underpants and starts talking about graphic novels. And really, and, I, and I've seen it myself, you know, it was almost like as a teacher, I felt like I needed to have this highbrow literature in front of students. And it did become workmanlike and compliance more than anything when they were pushing themselves through and then I, as a reward, I'd let them pull out their graphic right. novel or let them pull out their comic book. And now I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my goodness, the disservice I did. But but this thought of comic books and graphic novels and, and really find something to read that that you're passionate about. 
Well, and I think there's a couple of things there. So I'm, look, I'm an English teacher. So I love a, a juicy, you know, a meaty literary novel as much as anybody does. And that's ultimately where we want kids to get to is that they can pick up any text that they want to read and care to read and, and make their way through it. But there, there are some, I mean, we, we talk about in Striving to Thriving, I think graphic novels being the Rodney Dangerfields of literature in the sense that they can't get no respect. And and that's why it's important to anchor into research. So um, first of all, and, and this was the example that I used, Rob, was in when you look at a room full of proficient readers and you peel the onion and you ask about where did you get your reading volume as a child, very often some of those lowbrow things or seemingly lowbrow like comic books um, come into play, right? I myself was a big reader of comic books, but also, um, you know, what we called movie magazines back in the, you know, back in the, in the seventies. So, um, you know, not great literature by any stretch, but there's, there's interesting studies about the language in comic books and, um, and graphic novels and um, Krashen, the research of Krashen would be, would be one place to look for this, that actually the vocabulary in comic books is, is quite, is quite high. Um, but, but also kids do then graduate and move on. So what, one of the concerns that teachers will say about, oh, he's been reading Captain Underpants for, you know, for, for months. Well, yes, he has. And first of all, pick up one of those and read it yourself. If you, if you, yes. uh, you know, want to, want to inform yourself about the, the level of vocabulary, the level of nuance, the inferences that kids are, are making. Um, there's a lot of literary value there, but, um, but secondly, um, they often are uh, a gateway. There's a lot of heavy duty comprehension work that kids are doing in graphic novels as they often have to infer what's happening from one frame to um, to another. Mm -hmm. They're looking at um, there are other um, like literary elements like flashbacks occur frequently in graphic novels, um, just using different pictorial techniques. So first of all, they do have literary merit on their own. But second of all, kids naturally progress up that staircase of complexity. So the worry that that Captain Underpants reader at age eight is going to be reading Captain Underpants, you know, in high school is, is, is just unfounded. That's true. I, I love that. I love that. So Stephanie, you know, when you were uh, presenting, you shared a graphic about the time spent reading each day and how that translated to achievement results. And, and it really was something that kind of hit more of the scientific part of my brain. And I went, oh, I get it. Aha. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, that's a, that's a seminal, very famous study, Fielding and Anderson. Who, yeah, 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 exactly. And it's a, it's a really, um, and, and that is an interesting study that you're referring to because that is studied a, a study of outside of school reading. So as you can remember if, if in that study, and for those of you who are listening, um, kids who read, uh, you know, a, a minute a day, which virtually, how can, how can you even read only a minute a day? You know, I can, you see a stop sign and you're not too far away from a minute a day. But, you know, those kids who are reading only a minute a day outside of school are scoring typically around the 10th percentile on standardized reading achievements tests. And, you know, when they get up to reading maybe 
you know, 10 minutes a day, they're, they're scoring more around the 50th percentile. And literally when kids are reading 20 minutes a day, the study was done in fourth graders and some fifth graders. When, when they're reading 20 minutes a day, they score around the 90th percentile in reading te- in standardized test scores, which is unbelievable because it's outside of school, meaning instruction isn't even a part of that. So our concern about it, of course, we're big advocates of outside of school reading. They change achievements so dramatically, um, uh, the amount you read outside of school, but too many kids, too many kids, particularly our kids in poverty, don't have access to texts outside of school. So we have to make school the place School has to be the place where this reading happens. And we have to be delighted and thrilled if parents are having their kids read outside of school or if kids want to read outside of school. But the idea is that that will expand the gap if we don't make sure all kids get opportunities to read. So school really does need to be the place. And then the other thing is when school becomes the place to read, then we can really work with the kids because they've got something going on. So We, you know, and I know, and you, both of you have been principals or administrators, both of you have spent your, uh, I never was, I never was as a coach, I was a literacy coach, district literacy coach, but I used to freak out as a, as a young teacher when my principal came in and if, if kids were reading, the idea was that's all they were doing is reading. What, what do you, you know? So I, I was, I made sure that they would, they better not be reading when the principal came. Now this is back in the seventies, eighties, et cetera. But, but I used to really, that, that was a great concern to me. And so what we need, of course, is we need people like Annie and yourself to recognize and back teachers up on the whole idea of lots of volume in school, because otherwise it's scary for teachers. They're afraid that a principal is going to say, but you're not doing anything when in fact they're quietly about conferring with kids in their reading. And so that's really, that requires a shift as well, right? That uh, administrators understand this. Yeah. There, there's no question. And so I, I think we could speak for hours on end and I, I want to be careful not to do that. Um, although selfishly, I would love to do that, <laughs> but I would like to, you mentioned administrators, Stephanie. And so I want to hearken back to Annie. You spent some time sharing with us about classroom libraries and how sometimes classroom libraries can be de facto book deserts. And certainly as a brand new elementary teacher, I walked in the room and I looked on my bookshelves and they were empty. And very slowly as we had book fairs and I could purchase a few books and found some books at the local yard sale and that sort of thing. I was able to bring in some books, uh, but I would walk into a classroom or into a colleague's classroom and there were all these books and one, I was jealous, but I felt bad for my children. You've really been doing some work around classroom libraries in your district. Share, share with our listeners a little bit about that work and, and, and what you're looking for and what you're hoping to accomplish. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah. So I guess um one of the things that I began to notice was that our striving readers, so the very kids that we worry about the most, were not having that love relationship with their with their book. You know, when I would be looking um, uh, in in classroom visits, if I know that you know these six third graders are striving readers, and I'm going to be visiting third grade classrooms, and I would make it a point to go in and find the kids and and just talk with them, try to figure out what are they reading and how's that going. And there was clearly a pattern of that workmanlike relationship, or they would be having kind of a tattered 
copy of, you know, something that often was visibly different than what their peers were reading. So we know, you know, and it's true for adults too, when there's a a popular book, everyone catches the wave, everyone's reading it, talking about it. So the striver may not be able to read the latest, greatest thing that his peers are reading. And it's very likely that without a lot of careful curation, the classroom library, I mean, what we found in, in our district is that the classroom collections without systemic support were really skewed high. So the already proficient reader had a lot to read and the not yet proficient reader was in that that phrase that you, you know quoted that de facto book drought or book desert where quite literally, even in a room that appears to be full of books, there's nothing that's even accessible to that kid, never mind appealing or, or engaging. So I began to think, you know, we're a fairly large, by our standards, suburban district. We have 5,700 kids. So at the elementary level, we have about 125 classrooms. And we actually conducted a room-by-room inventory. And Steph and I write about this in Striving to Thriving, which really showed a mismatch of kids to books along the lines of what I described. That for for the already thriving, there was plenty to read. And for the striver, there was not. And also there were collections that really were dated and in need of weeding. I mean, massive weeding. Um, And so we set out to do something about this systemically, number one, by allocating um, funds directly to um, sort of in a tiered structure. And I spoke about this at the at the conference, but some money directly into teachers hands that's reliable, an, an annual allocation with the expectation that that your our, our mantra in Striving to Thriving is build the library for the readers we expect and then customize the collection for the for the readers that you meet. So one of the things that we found is that without a lot of systemic attention, um, the classroom libraries can really devolve into a situation where either they're full of a lot of dated and unappealing books. You know, teachers were all hoarders because we we hang on to um, resources and there might be a feeling that more books is better. But in the case of a classroom library, that's really not the case, that when bins or shelves are, are packed and um, with some tattered and yellowed items, um, nobody benefits from that. So um, devoting systemic attention um, can has, has a couple of important components. One is making sure that teachers have a really reliable, sacred allocation, that they know where their next book dollar, so to speak, is coming from. Um, and there's a lot behind the scenes, and Rob, you know this as a, as a district leader of the purse strings and making sure that whoever controls the purse strings understands that teachers need to know that that, that that money is available and that, in fact, they're expected to spend that, whatever your budget can afford, um, curating their classroom library. And the purchasing procedures have to be nimble enough. It can't be an endless mystery, um, you know, or where, where um, requests sit in files or desks somewhere and, and are never fulfilled. So it's not very glamorous or sexy to talk about, but we've spent a lot of time in our district working with our business office around nimble purchasing procedures and around also having local booksellers 
get on our state contract list. So I don't know how that works in North Carolina, but there's sort of a magic process that once you're an approved vendor, then even our local indie bookstores can work with us. And there the fulfillment is is quick. And um, those are connections that, you know, that, that we love and that they love. So the money has to be allocated. And then somebody has to make sure that um, teachers are, are, are helped to be made aware of some of the latest, greatest titles. So whether that is, um, you know, publishers that now are like Lee and Lowe that are, that are starting to really um, emphasize uh, authors of color where, um, you know, historically marginalized um, uh, populations are present on the page in really powerful ways. So, you know, somebody has to be helping teachers know what are some really awesome titles that they should be ordering. Um, and then also there has to be attention to weeding because um, collections can very quickly become, um, you know, full of either dog-eared books, even favorites that just become tattered and unappealing, or worse yet, books that are old and dated and may contain stereotypical, uh, you know, stereotypes that are really harmful to kids. So weeding is an important um, component of it. But basically, one of the, the real findings that Steph and I write about um, in Striving to Thriving is that for strivers, what the curation needs to do is to make sure that they have books that are um, that are accessible because we've just seen the tendency over and over again, especially when teachers move grade levels and without those allocations, they're going to pack up their, if I'm a fifth grade teacher and I'm moving to third grade, I'm going to pack up my fifth grade books and bring them to third grade where now I've just exacerbated that problem that for the striving third grader. So long story short, Curating classroom libraries is something that a system needs to really take seriously and give thought to and put procedures and, and practices in place that support teachers because teachers are are busy and they can't and they won't do it without that systemic support. There is yeah, just yes. one one thing about this is this this idea. It's not what they read. It's that they read. And we really need to keep that in mind. So joke books. There are kids who love to cook recipe books, cookbooks. It's just really broadening our notion of what it is to read because that's really so key for all of our kids, but particularly for those for who strive with reading and who really we want them to make great gains and stuff yeah for that high success and we talk a lot about that about the effort to reward ratio that that you know for striving readers need a really low effort to reward ratio every every page uh, you know when i open the book is going to bring me some kind of pleasure or delight or curiosity uh those bizarre facts those kinds of things that and these are the books that often we as teachers are our book snobs about oh put that away honey you know oh you've already you know you were looking at that uh you know last week or whatever the guinness book of world records those kinds of things that kids love and we tend to poo-poo them really at our peril. So we write a lot about that in um, in chapter three. I, I tell you, I just get so excited and, and probably because the two of you are so excited and I'm right there with you. And, you know, um, Annie, I just want to say thank you for really kind of peeling back the curtain a little bit and talking about what you're doing at the district level to support right. literacy. Every administrator that I've ever wanted to be around says they exist to support students and to support teachers and to make a difference, but sometimes aren't really sure what are, what are the ways we can do that. This is a way an administrator 
can make a tremendous difference in literacy by doing the work teachers don't have time to do, by helping to curate the classroom libraries or to audit the classroom libraries across the district and then to find the great books to make sure and then to do things like allowing teachers to go to the local bookseller and purchase some books. I mean, what a powerful thing that is to trust our teachers enough to purchase some books at the bookseller. My goodness, we're starting to talk like we treat them like professionals. <laughs> exactly. And all kinds of good things happen. You know, obviously, t- teachers are talking about books and they're talking about kids. Um, so just, you know, that one small thing is actually a huge thing. And I, you know, I, I just think that for administrators, we all know who our strivers are. That's not the hard part. But simply going into a classroom and, and looking to see what book that kid has in his hands, that's, that's a game changer. Because most often, as Steph said a minute ago, the kids that need to be reading the most are, are reading the least. And often it's because we haven't provided those compelling, um, those compelling books at their fingertips. There is no question that the mission is is huge, but it's important. As we think about for our students to be able to succeed later down the line in uh, the classes that lead to great careers, uh, they need to be able to, to read and read well. They need to read nonfiction to circle all the way back to the beginning, the first book you wrote about, Stephanie, and your work around um, nonfiction. And I am just so absolutely delighted that great people like the two of you are spending time thinking about, talking about, and then writing about from your experience and your expertise what we can all do to help students. Stephanie and Annie, you're so gracious with your time. Thank you so very much for the difference you're both making. I appreciate you greatly. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation in part one and two of From Striving to Thriving with Stephanie and Annie. As they write, the best intervention is a good book, one a child can and wants to read. Thank you for spending time with me today, and thank you for all that you do for every student, every teacher, and every staff member. You are making a difference. If no one else has told you, I want you to know that I believe in you. Good day. Thank you for listening to the Ad Leader Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving a review with five stars on Apple Podcasts so that we may continue to grow the Ad Leader community. We hope that you have enjoyed your time with Dr. Jackson. Until next time.